Well, good morning, church. Beautiful singing. It's been a pleasure to be here this weekend. I just want to say thank you to the church body uh, for extending Christ's love to myself, uh, my wife, and my little girl. Uh, we just have enjoyed our time, and we thank you. Uh, I also thank Jim and the elders for opening the pulpit to me and allowing me the privilege and pleasure to bring you the word this morning. Well, everybody loves a good story, whether it's, you know, children sitting on their parents' lap or their grandparents' laps or reminiscing about stories within your family. We all love a good story, and this continues into our adult life, right? You think about uh, sitting around a campfire, maybe, telling stories. You think about uh, around the water cooler on Monday morning, telling stories. We all love good stories. And what makes a good story? A good story is made oftentimes by twists and turns and unexpected elements, sometimes shocking elements. My wife and I, some of our favorite stories uh, have just those things, shocking elements. You could ask my wife about the bear hunting float trip that we took uh, that quickly turned into a whitewater rafting trip uh, and a near-death experience. Um, or years ago, before I was married, just over the past year, uh, the Snake River got the best of myself and my canoe. Nice float turned into, a, well, not nice float once I hit a couple of rapids that I, should, I had no business being on. The point is that we, we love good stories and these unexpected twists and turns in stories often make uh, for remembering them. And our Lord is no different. He loved to tell good stories as well, and we call his stories parables. And this morning, as mentioned, we're going to turn to perhaps one of his most famous parables, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. If you haven't turned there already, please do so. Luke 15. It's a story full of twists and turns and shocking elements. For this reason, your title this morning for the sermon is a shocking story, a shocking story. And in this morning's text, we will see Jesus use this storytelling technique to reveal hearts. He reveals the repentant sinner's heart. He reveals God's heart towards that repentant sinner, and ultimately, he reveals the Pharisees' hearts to themselves. And in so doing, we too can reflect on our own hearts. Do we have the heart of the repentant sinner? And if we do, does our heart reflect the heart of God in forgiving our brothers and sisters and other Sinners. This morning, I'll I'll read through the text in sections um, as we work our way through it. We'll focus on verses 11 through 32, but I want to begin at the beginning of the chapter to gather the context. So look with me at the beginning of Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Here we have Luke's introduction to the parable. Jesus is a man who receives sinners, a practice that he became well known for. You can think back to Levi, the tax collector. You probably know him better as Matthew. When Jesus called Matthew, what did Matthew do? He threw a party and he brought other sinners and tax collectors to this party, a dinner party with Jesus. And this really aggravated the scribes and the Pharisees. You see the scribes They were the top Bible teachers of the day, and most scribes were Pharisees, those who tried to follow God's law to a T, which of course is commendable. But what the Pharisees did is they put all these extra rules around God's law because they never wanted to get close to breaking God's law. And what was bad about this was the fact that having extra rules and regulations to help you keep God's law is not bad, but... What was bad about this is those extra rules and regulations became more important than God's law. One of their extra rules was that they should not associate with the godless, which, of course, what is Jesus doing in this passage? He's associating with the godless. Just by way of illustration, real quick, to help bring this point home, we all have cell phones, many of us, right? And we know that many temptations can come through us having those cell phones. If you have children, you know this. And many parents, for your own phone or for your children's, you put certain restrictions on these phones so that 
the temptations uh, don't have as sharp of an effect, right? We try to protect ourselves and protect our children. But if we were to impose that on other parents or impose that on other people, what we've decided to do in our families and what's best for our children, we would begin to be like the Pharisees. I can't believe you don't have these extra things on your phone to protect your children. We'd be acting in a self-righteous way like these Pharisees. And they were trying to impose this extra rule on Jesus that you can't associate with the godless. So in response to these Pharisees and scribes grumbling about Jesus receiving sinners, what does Jesus do? He tells them this parable. And notice in verse 3, the word parable is singular. It's singular. We often think of these uh, three parts of this parable as one parable, or excuse me, as three parables, but in fact, it is one. It might be more accurate to think of them as different parts or scenes to this one parable. So I'm going to get a running start and read the first two parts, and then we'll spend most of our time in the third part, the prodigal son. And as I read these first two parts, I want you to notice uh, two things. First, I want you to notice that this first, these first two parts of this parable is salvation depicted from God's perspective, while the third part is salvation depicted from man's perspective. Also, I want you to discern with me what Jesus' main point is in this parable. In parables, Jesus often gives his main point at the very end, um, and I think you'll see that as we read these first two parts. So read with me, picking up again in verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost." Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, were you able to discern that main point in these parts of the parable? That God rejoices over saving sinners. He rejoices over sinners who repent. We might say that that is the theme here in these first two parts, or even the theme of Luke 15. So in response to the Pharisees and scribes grumbling about Jesus receiving these sinners, what does he do? He tells them that it brings God much joy to do this, to seek out sinners and to see them repent. But then he goes on to develop his main point and apply it directly to his listeners, the Pharisees and scribes who are grumbling. So let's look at part three, which I've already labeled as a shocking story. Again, this is salvation from the sinner's perspective. Read on with me in verses 11 through 13. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. We'll label verses 11 through 13 a shocking request, a shocking request. So Jesus' listeners here, both the the tax collector standing by and the Pharisees, this would have been an outlandish request by any son, let alone the youngest son. First, it's actually in your bulletin, the Ten Commandments. What is the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother. As a Jewish father, he certainly would have taught his son to memorize these commandments. And here he is clearly 
breaking them in absolute rebellion towards his father. And we must understand, right, he's not asking his father, hey, dad, can I have a share of the family's, you know, wealth so that I can begin to build my own wealth and continue the the family's wealth? No, that's not what he's asking. He's asking for quick cash, right? We might think of a pawn shop when he liquidates his father's assets to get out of town, right? He's not getting what they're worth. He just wants money so that he can go and spend it on his pleasures. And where does he go? The text says, into a far country. Why is he going to this far country? Because there's no accountability there, right? There's no judgment for his sin and how he spends his father's inheritance and all the pleasure because there's no judgment, right? That's how the, the, the lie of sin goes, Now, to request this inheritance is one thing, but to do so and spend it on licentious living is an absolute rebellion to his father. In fact, I mean, he's essentially saying here, right, Dad, I wish you were dead so that I could just have my inheritance already. In verses 11 11 through 13, the Pharisees would have been shocked by this request, but they would have been even more shocked by what? The father's response. Those listening to Jesus' parable in the crowd would have expected this father to rebuke his son severely, publicly even. I I don't know what that would have looked like in the Jewish culture, but it wouldn't have been pretty. But no, just as shocking as the son's request is the father's response. Sure, son, here's the inheritance. Take it and use it as you wish with your new pagan friends in a foreign country. Dad, what are you thinking? Why... Are you allowing this son to dishonor you in this way? This must be what the Pharisees and scribes are thinking, and even the tax collectors sitting there. Certainly, they were indignant about the son's request, but even more so, this father's response. But it's right to slow down here with the parable and just think about our own breaking of God's law and his goodness to us and how we have dishonored him. And make the theological point that God often allows the sinner to go his own way. John MacArthur says of this text, quote, that God shows extreme forbearance. He gives sinners freedom to pursue their own self-will, even though it is clear that their only intention is to rebel against his will. And he does so even though their rebellion seems for the moment to cause him great dishonor. If you're a parent, you understand this to some extent, right? It's not easy, but sometimes children need to learn the hard way. MacArthur goes on to say, we need to understand that this reaction of the father's or the son's father depicts the love of God for rebellious humanity. Now, don't misunderstand. There is certainly an extent, a major extent to this request, you know, dishonors his father. But remember that God's creation, each and every one of us, have been rebelling, some continue to rebel, some have turned from that rebellion against God and his creation. But don't mistake God's forbearance and patience for a failure to act, right? God is actively holding back his full fury and wrath against sinners who have broken his law, patiently waiting for them to turn to him in repentance. Romans 2.4 Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And sometimes that means that God allows man to live in the depths and consequences of his sin for a time before graciously granting spiritual life and freeing that man's will to come to his creator in repentance and faith, which is exactly what we see next Pick up again with me in verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants... Have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. And these verses will label a shocking realization, a shocking realization. The fact that the younger son heads into a foreign land and ends up blowing all of his dad's money on licentious living. This isn't a surprising result. If he had asked the Pharisees, the scribes, the tax collectors, well, what do you think is going to happen next? They would have probably given some answer along these lines. It's no surprise when sinful, selfish desires and sin leads us to drive this man's decision-making and we lose that which is dear to us. This principle is true in Scripture, number Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. Or Galatians 6, 7, you know, you know it well, I'm sure. Whatever a man sows this, he will also reap. So soon after this young man spends all of his dad's money, what happens? His situation goes from bad to worse. By what? A famine. A famine. Now the Pharisees and scribes might be thinking, to themselves. Yes, finally, God's justice has caught up with this young man. This is exactly what he deserves. But I want you to see in this famine God's grace. The question is who ultimately controls famines? Who ultimately controls the weather? We know that it is God. The Jews would have known this. Psalm 147:8 Who covers the heavens with clouds? Who provides rain for the earth? Who makes grass to grow on the mountains? The clear answer is Yahweh does. And these religious leaders, they would have known that. But they didn't have room for God's grace within famines. They were so wrapped up in their self-righteous living that they had no room for God's grace. Think, think with me about just God's grace in famines for a second. And, and know that the Jews would have had the book of Genesis and all of its stories stored away in their minds, especially these religious leaders. Abraham was driven into Egypt in Genesis 20, where God made him a wealthy man through Pharaoh. How did he end up in Egypt? Through a famine. Or Genesis 26, the same. Isaac, Abraham's son, he was driven into the land of the Philistines, where again, God grew the family wealth there in that land. And of course, most familiar to us, the story of Joseph in Egypt, Jacob, son, Israel's son. He goes there, he gets sent there because his brothers sell him into slavery. And a famine ends up bringing his family there. And lo and behold, in God's providence, through this famine, Joseph's there to provide for his family. We have to see God's grace in this famine. And what did God's grace do for this young man in our story in the parable? Verse 17, look at it with me. The young man came to himself. Another way of translating this verse is the young man came to his senses. You see, this young man had lost all of his father's money, if he had lost all of his father's money, I should say, in a properly working economy. I mean, he was a young man. He could have, you know, pulled himself up by his bootstraps, we might say, and figured out a way to make a living and take care of himself. But that doesn't happen because of the famine. He can't do that because of the famine. And we read that he hired himself out to a local man to do what? To feed pigs. Pigs were an unclean animal to the Jews. This would have been disgraceful for this man. This would have been disgraceful to these Jews listening to this story. I can't believe this son's sin has brought him so low. Leviticus 11, 7, and 8 writes to the Jewish man, The pig is unclean to you. You shall not eat of their flesh, nor even touch of their carcass. They are unclean to you. No self-respecting Jew would have taken this job willingly. But perhaps here is one of the Bible's greatest illustrations of a man wallowing in the consequences of his sinful actions. A man that Bible would, the Bible would label as spiritually dead. Turn with me to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, which speaks of the spiritually dead man. In Ephesians 2, Paul describes for us where every man is before God calls him out of darkness and into light, before God gives the sinner spiritual life. Ephesians 2, the first 
three verses. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let me ask you, have you seen yourself as this text describes? Have you seen yourself as this young man in the parable? Perhaps you are not blowing all of your dad's money in a foreign land, but have you come to this realization that you're a sinner by nature and you need God's grace. This is the sinful condition and state that we're all born into. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my, in sin, excuse me, did my mother conceive me. Each one of us were blind, born blind to our sinful condition. And more than that, this text says we were spiritually dead. Until what? Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, just like the young man in our parable, God did what? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is what's happening in Luke 15 in this young man's life. God is graciously granting this young man spiritual life, and he sees himself accurately for the first time. He sees his sinful condition. He sees his utter, utter filthiness before God, and he's wallowing around in this pig pen, but his spiritual condition is far worse than his outward appearance. And although this sinful, all these sinful actions of this man brought him to this low point in his life, this is exactly where God wanted him, is it not? God is the one that sent this famine into this land, into this man's life, to bring him to the end of himself, we might say. John Calvin says of this verse, here is described to us a way in which God invents, or excuse me, invites men to repentance, end quote. Or in the words of Ezekiel 36, God is removing this young man's heart of stone and giving him a heart of flesh. In theological lingo, we call this regeneration or the new birth. And the new birth is the first thing that takes place in the sinner's life uh, when salvation is applied to him. God is the first one to act in salvation. Ephesians 2 doesn't say that man was dead in his sin and then man did something. No, verses 4 and 5, as we read, says, but God made us alive. Until God acts upon a spiritually dead man's heart, that man can do nothing, not even repent and believe. How do we know this? 1 John 5, 1. 1 John 5, 1. Listen. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, meaning that the new birth comes before the believing. 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul writes, God grants repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. In other words, God grants the new birth, which immediately leads to repentance and faith in him. In Luke 15, these first two, the first two parts of the parable, remember? Who was it that searched out the lost sheep? And who was it that searched out the lost coin? The sheep and the coin, they didn't even know they were lost. God is the one who searches out the spiritually dead sinner. And when God pursues the spiritually dead sinner, he is always successful. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you know, God is repenting for this man. He's not believing for this man. No, he's acting upon this man's heart so that this man can exercise faith and can repent of his sins that lead to a subsequently changed life. In this moment of new birth, this young man in our parable saw himself accurately for the first time, dead in his own sin, sins of both, both against his earthly father, as he said, and Heaven, he says, his heavenly father. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, this young man reserved, or resolved to turn from his life of sin and return to his father's house. Turn back with me to Luke 15. Did you catch his attitude in this, in his uh, 
confession that he you know, writes up in his mind to his father? Humility. Humility. The son was not willing to return to his father's house as what? A son. But he says, I'll return as a hired worker. Now, a hired worker might not sound all that bad, but in this context, in this culture, that's a, a day laborer, essentially, right? A slave would be higher than a day laborer in this culture. A slave had the privileges of being in the household. They were taken care of. They, they were given a roof over their head. They were given clothing. Oftentimes, slaves managed their master's business in some sense. But a, but a hired worker, he didn't know where his next paycheck was coming from. He didn't know where he was going to find his next meal. This is how low this man humbles himself to a hired servant. He's displaying the, the second beatitude of the kingdom citizen. Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn. What are they mourning over? Those who are blessed. They're mourning over their own sin, for they shall be comforted. Consider for a moment if there is a famine in your life, or perhaps in the life of a loved one of yours, they can come in many ways. Death of a loved one, a lost job, illness, the list goes on. Perhaps God is using that to humble a sinner. And this, is hap- this happens, God does this both initially, sometimes, not to everyone, but initially in people's lives to, to bring them to the end of themselves like this young man so that they can see themselves accurate for, accurately for the first time but then also within a relationship with him because we're still sinners and we still need to be purified of sin and humble ourselves, right? Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. God will use famines in the Christian's life as well to wean them from this world so that they love him all the more. Next, after this young man's shocking realization, that ultimately being, as I've made the case, his regeneration, we begin reading again where I left off in the middle of verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now in our fitness-obsessed world, we expect old men to run. Well, maybe not expect, but we see old men running, right? And it's not a shock to us. But in, this, in these verses, in this shocking reconciliation of between this father and son, he runs to his son. And a man in this culture, this was not the norm. Kenneth Bailey, an evangelical scholar, says that the Arabic translations of the Bible refused to translate this Greek word in any way that resembled him actually running. Because a man of this status running in this culture would have been dishonoring to him. He notes, this scholar, Kenneth Bailey, that up until about the 19th century, the mid-19th century, Arabic Bibles translated this phrase as he ran and he hurried, as he, he presented himself, as to depict him not running. But he's clearly running. This Greek term was used in extra-biblical Greek as sprinting. He's sprinting to his son. Why? Because he's become so overwhelmed of the joy of seeing his son come back to him. He sprints to him, he throws out all cultural norms, and he embraces his son. He throws his arms around his neck, and he kisses his neck. That's what the word embracing there means. But before this father ran to his son, the text says that he sees the son a long way off. Now, the word translated here, a long way off, is the, the same word in verse 20, is the same word in verse 13 that's translated a far country. 
And I believe this shows that the father is not only physically seeing his son a long way off and then runs to him, but also that he's anxiously anticipating his son's return long before he ever sees him on the horizon returning home. Is this not the same with our Heavenly Father? He's ready to embrace us long before the moment we decide, I'm going to go back to my Heavenly Father. I'm going to turn from my sins and trust in Him alone. Even now, God stands with open arms to receive the repentant sinner. What drove this father's reaction to his son's return? Verse 20 says, he felt compassion on him. The word here translated felt compassion for him is, uh, denotes uh, the feeling in your stomach. Right? You know the, the feeling when you uh, get, oftentimes it happens when we're nervous or we're excited about something. Something rises up inside you. That's what's happening to this father. One commentator says it's an ancient way of referring to what rises up from one's innermost core. And what rose up from his innermost core was joy. So much joy that, as we said, he throws out all social norms. So much joy that he runs, sprints even, to this son. And so much joy that he throws a party to restore him to the family. Did you notice that the younger son never even gets say his full confession. He never gets the part about being a hired servant. His father embraces him as a son as soon as he comes home. Instant forgiveness from the father. In the middle of this confession, the father cuts him off and says to his slaves, robe, sandals, ring, fattened calf, we're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate that this son has come home. The father is ecstatic over this repentant son. Nothing could bring him more joy. This is the same joy that God has, that Jesus has, when the sinner turns from his sin and turns to God. Now, there's been a lot of speculation over what these gifts might denote, but the big picture is that he's been reconciled to his father. That's what's being shown here. Now, the robe likely Can't know for sure, but likely would have been the robe that the patriarch would have worn at a party like this, so that everyone would have known that's the guest of honor. But he takes that robe and he gives it to his son. The ring likely would have been the signet ring that shows that the son's not just restored to the family, but he's restored to that place of authority that he had before. And the fattened calf, scholars estimate probably 200 plus people. This is no small party. And by the way, all of these... Gifts would have been reserved for the older son on his wedding day. This really is a shocking reconciliation. And the Pharisees and scribes listening to Jesus' parable would have been utterly disgusted. They would have been utterly disgusted by the son's request, by the father's response to that request, and now by the father's reception of that younger son. Yes, the Pharisees and scribes would have recognized that this younger son needed to confess and repent of his sins, But the Pharisees taught that this was a work that gained favor with the Father, a work that even gained favor with God. They didn't teach that repentance and confession were a work of God in the sinner's heart. They taught that not only the blood of bulls and goats were required to atone for sin, but then also a lifetime of good works was required to make atonement for sin. So they would have expected this father to receive the son back, But oh boy, this son would have had to work his tail off in order to be accepted back into the family. He would have had to have atoned himself for what he had done in this family. And he probably would have never been brought back to this place of honor. But this is what legalism teaches. This is what any false religion teaches. They try to slide even just a little bit of our works into pleasing God and our works and to be justified before God. But this is not true. MacArthur says that the Pharisees had no category in their theology for showing grace to the sinner. End quote. Their system wouldn't allow it because they wanted to have a part in being right before God, in earning their righteousness before God. But Jesus here squashes their theology. And the Father's forgiveness to this son is instant. Don't miss this. The very moment God grants the sinner 
new birth and repentance, and he exercises that repentance and faith, he is instantly forgiven. May this be great comfort to you, Christian. Your sins, past, present, and future, if you are in union with Christ, they have been forgiven. Now, we still struggle with sin. We recognize that. We won't be rid of sin until glorification, and we need to continue to fight that sin. But we are adopted into God's family. We've been brought into his household. And just like this son here in this parable, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. Paul goes on in that wonderful chapter of Romans 8 to say in verses 38 and 39, Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Man, this humbles us, doesn't it? If it was up to us, I mean, we would lose our salvation every day, let's face it. But it's not up to us. God holds us fast. And while it is appropriate and right to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and to put off sin and to put on righteousness. God holds us fast and we Christian are spiritually alive in the Father's house. This gives God so much joy to repent, to to grant sinners repentance and to give them spiritual life, to reconcile them to himself through the life and death of his Son. So much joy that sinners who deserve the complete opposite, eternal death in the lake of fire, eternal separation from their creator, God gives them the complete opposite. And he gives them a share in the inheritance with his son, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Think about that for a second. Think about the greatest inheritance that you could imagine. Elon Musk is worth two Sorry, $262 billion. Just imagine, that's your inheritance. It pales in comparison to the inheritance that you receive in the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is what's happening to our young man in this text. But then Peter goes on to say, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The signet ring, the robe, the sandals, the fattened calf, the big party, the celebration, they're all nice gestures from an earthly father receiving his repentant son back. But they pale in comparison to the inheritance that we receive. We have received if we're in Christ. It just has not yet fully manifested itself. It gives God great joy, giving spiritual life to the spiritually dead sinner and seeing that sinner come alive, repent of their sin, and turn to Christ. The triune God celebrates this. Look again at verse 24 with me. For this my son was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. But... Does everyone celebrate over this confession and repentance? Is everyone filled with joy over this son who comes home and is adopted back into the family, is reconciled to his father? Unfortunately not. Continue reading with me. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked, What these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and you never, or excuse me, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have, or all that is mine, is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this 
Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. In these final verses, we have your fourth outline point, a shocking reaction, a shocking reaction. You can imagine the older son coming out of the field, right? I mean, sunburnt neck, sweat-stained clothing. He's ready for a hot meal, a warm bed to get up and do it all over again. He sees this commotion at his father's house. What is this? I didn't know there was a party planned this evening. Why are there 200 plus people at my father's house and all this music? He inquires of the servant, what's going on? And he tells him, your younger brother, he's alive. We thought he was dead in this foreign land, but he's not. He's alive and your father's throwing a party because he's home and he's received him back into the family. You might expect the older brother to celebrate along with him, but that's not what we see. You can imagine his fists clenching the hair on his back, neck beginning to rise, blood rushing to his face, and he refuses to go into this party. He refuses to enter into his father's celebration. The Pharisees and scribes, remember the bigger picture. Jesus is telling this to the Pharisees and the scribes. They're sitting there saying, yes, finally, someone in this family with some sense, someone in this family who cares about some justice around here, someone who recognizes that this younger son is not getting what he deserves. But that's precisely the point, is it not? God doesn't give repentant sinners what they deserve. They deserve eternal death, eternal punishment in hell, separation from their creator. Every single one of us does. But instead, God gives the repentant sinner the complete opposite of what he deserves. God is overjoyed at the repentant sinner. And he lavishes his grace upon him. Now at this point, the Pharisees and scribes might be getting, begin to put the dots together, put the pieces of the puzzle together, and recognize that this is a picture of them. This older brother in the parable is a picture of them. Look back again with me at Luke 15, 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Just like the older brother in this parable, the Pharisees and the scribes are not celebrating with Jesus. They're angry that he's receiving these repentant sinners. But that's not the only thing they have in common with this Older brother, did you catch the older brother's self-righteousness? Look at verse 29 again. Look, these many years I have served you. We could translate that, I've been your slave. And then he goes on to say, I've never disobeyed your command. I've never disobeyed your command, never once. How self-righteous is this older brother? And he wasn't serving his father out of love, was he? No. He ultimately wanted the same thing his younger brother did. He just chose a different path to get there. He wasn't serving his father out of joy and love. He saw his service to his father as slave labor and was waiting for his father's inheritance. Darrell Bach, a commentator on the Gospel of Luke, speaks of the the spatial irony we see here in this text, listen to what he says. It's very helpful. He says, The one who was an outsider is now inside the party, and the one who appeared to be an insider is now complaining outside the party and refusing to go in. What the younger son felt fortunate to become, a mere slave, a hired worker, the older brother has resented all along. End quote. You see, what Jesus is saying here is you can have the appearance of being part of God's family outwardly while inwardly your, height, your heart might be in a foreign land, in a distant country, or to contemporize that. You may come to church week in and week out and have the appearance that you're part of God's family, but in reality, you still serve a sinful, selfish heart and you're feeding your self-righteousness. One Bible commentator says here, some sinners smell of the hog pen, while others reek of the church pew. But yet again, we see a surprising response, don't we? From the Father. 
At this point, the perceptive Pharisees and scribes, uh, they're represented by the older brother in this parable. They're expecting the father to come down and rebuke this older son for his hypocrisy. But instead, what do we see? The father's compassionate heart, which represents God and Jesus' compassionate heart. Dane Ortland says, Jesus is not trigger happy. He is not harsh or reactionary or easily exasperated. He's the most understanding person in the universe. The father in this parable replies, son, in our text, literally the word is child. It's a very tender response. Again, Bach is helpful. The father's reply is as gentle as the son's complaint was harsh, he says. And in this parable, we have perhaps Jesus' softest response to the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees and scribes, they were part of God's family, but only according to the flesh. If they were here today, they would be sitting in the pews with you. Paul says as much in Romans 9.4, he says that they are descendants of Abraham, and to them belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple services and the promises. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that the Jews had all of the privileges of being God's chosen people, but what they failed to recognize is that they too needed a savior because they were blinded by their own self-righteousness. Paul goes on in that chapter, Romans 9, 6, he says, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. What does that mean? By and large, we know Israel, what, rejected their Messiah. They refused to repent and believe in him alone. But in this parable, the father is graciously imploring his older son to come into the celebration, repent of your sins, acknowledge your self-righteousness, that it is as foolish as your younger brother's rebellion and enter into your father's joy. And in the same way, Jesus is doing the same thing to the Pharisees and scribes, imploring them to come into the father's joy. Repent of your self-righteousness. Come to me, the only way of salvation, Jesus is saying. Although they never left the family farm, the Pharisees and scribes are likewise dead in their sin, just like their older brother. But the question is, will they turn to Jesus? Which brings us to our fifth and final point this morning. A shocking resolution. A shocking resolution. As the reader, Luke has brought us to the end of our seat. We're ready for the older brother's response to this father's request. We're ready to see, will the Pharisees and scribes, will they respond to Jesus' call to repentance and faith? Will they leave their self-righteousness and come to the one and only way of salvation, Jesus Christ? But then Jesus ends his parable here. And we're left with no further verses. We're left to wonder, will this son respond? Will will, will the Pharisees and scribes respond? Do they come to their senses and come to Jesus? Ultimately, we don't know if any of the individual scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus that day. Knowing God's gracious character, I like to believe that some did. He is joyful over saving sinners and calling them out of darkness and into light. But ultimately, by and large, we know that what? The Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders in Israel, they rejected their Messiah and they murdered him by nailing him to a cross. And their greatest sin brings about the greatest good that the world has ever known. Acts 4.12 says that there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. This is a shocking end to Jesus' parable. And it's meant to provoke in us, as I said earlier, where are our hearts? Do we have the heart of the repentant sinner when we see sin in our lives? Do we have the hard heart of the older brother and the Pharisees? If there's any sense in which you believe that you contribute to your salvation, to your justification, and even the slightest, Your self-righteousness is no different than the scribes. You must turn from that sin and turn to Christ, and you will receive instant forgiveness. Immediately, you will be adopted into your heavenly Father's family. And then, with Christ's robes of righteousness, the robes of righteousness that he earned by living a perfect life as the God-man never once sinning, will be applied to you and your sin applied to his death on a cross. And then you will be able to live in obedience and love of your Lord and Savior. 
That's the grace of our great God, the grace represented in this parable. And make no mistake, right, we spent a lot of time talking about the younger son, about the older son, but the main character is the father representing God in his heart. And for those of you who are believers and who are in a relationship in union with Christ, I mentioned at the beginning, do you and does your heart represent that of the forgiving Father, right? We know that we are being transformed, as we read, from one degree of glory to the next. We are to be like Jesus Christ. This is his heart represented for us in this parable. Do our hearts reflect that? When a brother or sister in Christ sins against you, do you forgive them in your heart? Or do you hold a grudge and bitterness against them? Now, when brothers and sisters sin against one, or one another, I'm talking about brothers and sisters in Christ, we expect that there be reconciliation in that relationship. But do you forgive in your heart that brother or sister long before they come to you and ask for forgiveness and there is reconciliation? And then if an unbeliever sins against you, recognize his heart, right? He's dead in his sin. He doesn't know. Pray for him. Forgive him in his heart or in your heart. Don't hold on to forgiveness and bitterness, but forgive him in your heart and pray for him that the Lord would reveal himself to that sinner. This is the grace of our great God. This is the the heart of our God represented by Jesus in this parable. Let's pray. Our great God, thank you so much for this great parable. There's so much that can can be said, Lord. Um, We're so grateful that you are a God who seeks out sinners. You are a God who breaks down their heart of stone and grants them a heart of flesh. Lord, thank you for doing that for so many here. May we live as disciples of Jesus Christ, walking as he did with this forgiving heart represented to us. May we represent him well as his disciples in love, following him and his commands. May that be the greatest joy of our life. And Lord, for those who have not repented of their sins, if their hearts have been revealed to themselves today, Lord, grant them repentance and faith so that they may know the eternal riches that you lavish upon repentant sinners. Father, we thank you for your great grace and forgiveness. We pray that you would grant us the strength and encouragement to walk in your commands this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.